Chapter fourteen of Is He Popenjoy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Is He Popenjoy? by Antony Trollope. Chapter fourteen. Are we to call him Popenjoy? The news which he had heard did afflict Lord George very much. A day or two after the dinner party in Berkeley Square, he found Mr. Knox, his brother's agent, and learned from him that Miss Houghton's story was substantially true. The Marquis had informed his man of business that an heir had been born to him, but had not communicated the fact to any one of the family. This omission, in such a family, was, to Lord George's thinking, so great a crime on the part of his brother as to make him doubt whether he could ever again have fraternal relations with a man who so little knew his duty. When Mr. Knox showed him the letter, his brow became very black. He did not often forget himself, was not often so carried away by any feeling as to be in danger of doing so, but on this occasion even he was so moved as to be unable to control his words. "'An Italian brat! Who is to say how it was born?' "'The Marquis, my lord, would not do anything like that,' said Mr. Knox, very seriously." Then Lord George was ashamed of himself, and blushed up to the roots of his hair. He had hardly himself known what he had meant. But he mistrusted an Italian widow, because she was an Italian, and because she was a widow, and he mistrusted the whole connection, because there had been in it none of that honourable openness which should, he thought, characterise all family doings in such a family as that of the Germains. "'I don't know of what kind you mean,' he said, shuffling, and knowing that he shuffled. I don't suppose my brother would do anything really wrong, but it's a blot to the family, a terrible blot." "'She is a lady of good family, a Marchese,' said Mr. Knox. "'An Italian Marchese,' said Lord George, with that infinite contempt with which an English nobleman has for foreign nobility, not of the highest order. He had learnt that Miss Houghton's story was true, and was certainly very unhappy. It was not at all that he had pictured to himself the glory of being himself the Marquis of Brotherton after his brother's death. Nor was it only the disappointment which he felt as to any possible son of his own, though on that side he did feel the blow. The reflection which perplexed him most was the consciousness that he must quarrel with his brother, and that after such a quarrel he would become nobody in the world. And then, added to this, was the sense of family disgrace. He would have been quite content with his position had he been left master of the house at Manor Cross, even without any of his brother's income wherewith to maintain the house. But now he would only be his wife's husband, the dean's son-in-law, living on their money, and compelled by circumstances to adapt himself to them. He almost thought that had he known that he would be turned out of Manor Cross, he would not have married. And then, in spite of his disclaimer to Mr. Knox, he was already suspicious of some foul practice. An heir to the title and property, to all the family honours of the Germains, had suddenly burst upon him twelve months, for aught that he knew, two or three years, after the child's birth. Nobody had been informed when the child was born, or in what circumstances, except that the mother was an Italian widow. What evidence on which an Englishman might rely could possibly be forthcoming from such a country as Italy? Poor Lord George, who was himself as honest as the sun, was prepared to believe all evil things of people of whom he knew nothing. 
Should his brother die, and his brother's health was bad, what steps should he take? Would it be for him to accept this Italian brat as the heir to everything, or must he ruin himself by a pernicious lawsuit? Looking forward, he saw nothing but family misery and disgrace, and he saw also inevitable difficulties with which he knew himself to be incapable to cope. It is true, he said to his wife very gloomily, when he first met her after his interview with Mr. Knox. What Miss Houghton said? I felt sure it was true, directly she told me. I don't know why you should have felt sure merely on her word, as to a thing so monstrous as this is. You don't seem to see that it concerns yourself. No, I don't. It doesn't concern me at all, except as it makes you unhappy. Then there was a pause for a moment, during which she crept close up to him, in a manner that had now become usual with her. "'Why do you think I married you?' she said. He was too unhappy to answer her pleasantly, too much touched by her sweetness to answer her unpleasantly, and so he said nothing. Certainly not with any hope that I might become Marchioness of Brotherton. Whatever may have made me do such a thing, I can assure you that that had nothing to do with it. "'Can't you look forward?' Don't you suppose that you may have a son?" Then she buried her face upon his shoulder. And if so, would it not be better that a child so born should be the heir than some Italian baby of whom no one knows anything? If you are unhappy, George, I shall be unhappy. But for myself I will not affect to care anything. I don't want to be a marchioness. I only want to see you without a frown on your brow. To tell the truth, if you didn't mind it, I should care nothing about your brother and his doings. I would make a joke of this Marchese, who, Miss Houghton says, is a puckered-faced old woman. Miss Houghton seems to care a great deal more about it than I do. It cannot be a subject for a joke. He was almost angry at the idea of the wife of the head of the family being made a matter of laughter. That she should be reprobated, hated, cursed if necessary, was within the limits of family dignity but not that she should become a joke to those with whom she had unfortunately connected herself. When he had finished speaking to her, she could not but feel that he was displeased, and could not but feel also the injustice of such displeasure. Of course she had her own little share in the general disappointments, but she had striven before him to make nothing of it, in order that he may be quite sure that she had married him, not with any idea of rank or wealth, but for himself alone. She made light of the family misfortune, in order that he might be relieved. And yet he was angry with her. This was unreasonable. How much she had done for him! Was she not striving every hour of her life to love him, and at any rate to comfort him with the conviction that he was loved? Was she not constant in her assurance to herself that her whole life should be devoted to him? And yet he was surly to her simply because his brother had disgraced himself. When she was left alone, she sat down and cried, and then consoled herself by remembering that her father was coming to her. It had been arranged that the last days of February should be spent by Lord George with his mother and sisters at Cross Hall, and that the dean should run up to town for a week. Lord George went down to Brotherton by a morning train, and the dean came up on the same afternoon. But the going and coming were so fixed that the two men met at the deanery. Lord George had determined that he would speak fully to the dean, respecting his brother. He was always conscious of the dean's low birth, remembering, with some slight discomfort, 
the stable-keeper and the tallow-chandler, and he was a little inclined to resent what he thought to be a disposition on the part of the dean to domineer. But still, the dean was a practical, sagacious man in whom he could trust, and the assistance of such a friend was necessary to him. Circumstances had bound him to the dean, and he was a man not prone to bind himself to many men. He wanted, and yet feared, the confidence of friendship. He lunched with the dean, and then told his story. "'You know,' he said, "'that my brother is married.' "'Of course, we all heard that.' He was married more than twelve months before he informed us that he was going to be married. No. It was so. Do you mean, then, that he told you a falsehood? His letter to me was very strange, though I did not think much of it at the time. He said, I am to be married, naming no day. That certainly was a falsehood, as at that time he was married. I do not know that harsh words will do any good. Nor I, but it is best, George, that you and I should be quite plain in our words to each other. Placed as he was, and as you were, he was bound to tell you of his marriage, as soon as he knew it himself. You had waited till he was between forty and fifty, and, of course, he must feel that what you would do would depend materially upon what he did. It didn't at all. And then, having omitted to do his duty, he screens his fault by a— positive misstatement, when his intended return home makes further concealment impossible. All that, however, is of little moment, said Lord George, who could not but see that the dean was already complaining that he had been left without information which he ought to have possessed when he was giving his daughter to a probable heir to the title. There is more than that. What more? He had a son born more than twelve months since. "'Who said so?' exclaimed the dean, jumping up from his chair. "'I heard it first, or rather Mary did, in common conversation from an old friend. I then learned the truth from Knox. Though he had told none of us, he had told Knox.' "'And Knox has known it all through?' "'No, only lately. But he knows it now. Knox supposes that they are coming home, so that the people about may be reconciled to the idea of his having an heir.' There will be less trouble, he thinks, if the boy comes now, than if he were never heard of till he was ten or fifteen years old, or perhaps till after my brother's death. "'There may be trouble enough still,' said the dean, almost with a gasp. The dean, it was clear, did not believe in the boy. Lord George remembered that he himself had expressed disbelief, and that Mr. Knox had almost rebuked him. "'I have now told you all the facts,' said Lord George, and have told them as soon as I knew them. "'You are as true as the sun,' said the dean, putting his hand on his son-in-law's shoulder. "'You will be honest, but you must not trust in the honesty of others. Poor Mary!' "'She does not feel it in the least, will not even interest herself about it. She will feel it some day. She is no more than a child now. I feel it, George, I feel it, and you ought to feel it. I feel his ill-treatment of myself. What, in not telling you? That is probably no more than a small part of a wide scheme. We must find out the truth of all this. I don't know what there is to find out, said Lord George hoarsely. Nor do I, but I do feel that there must be something. Think of your brother's position and standing, of his past life and his present character. This is no time now for being mealy-mouthed. 
when such a man as he appears suddenly with a foreign woman and a foreign child, and announces one as his wife and the other as his heir, having never reported the existence of one or of the other, it is time that some inquiry should be made. I, at any rate, shall make inquiry. I shall think myself bound to do so on behalf of Mary." Then they parted, as confidential friends do part, but each with some feeling antagonistic to the other. The dean, though he had from his heart acknowledged that Lord George was as honest as the son, still felt himself to be aggrieved by the Germain family, and doubted whether his son-in-law would be urgent enough and constant in hostility to his own brother. He feared that Lord George would be weak, feeling, as regarded himself, that he would fight till he had spent his last penny, as long as there was a chance that by fighting a grandson of his own might be made Marquis of Brotherton. He, at any rate, understood his own heart in the matter, and knew what it was that he wanted. But Lord George, though he had found himself compelled to tell everything to the dean, still dreaded the dean. It was not in accordance with his principles that he should be leagued against his brother with such a man as Dean Lovelace, and he could see that the dean was thinking of his own possible grandchildren, whereas he himself was thinking only of the family of Germain. He found his mother and sister at the small house, the house at which Farmer Price was living only a month or two since. No doubt it was the recognized dower house, but nevertheless there was still about it a flavor of Farmer Price. A considerable sum of money had been spent upon it, which had come from a sacrifice of a small part of the capital belonging to the three sisters, with an understanding that it should be repaid out of the old lady's income. But no one, except the old lady herself, anticipated such repayment. All this had created trouble and grief, and the family, which was never gay, was now more sombre than ever. When the further news was told to Lady Sarah, it almost crushed her. "'A child!' she said, in a horror-stricken whisper, turning quite pale, and looking as though the crack of doom were coming at once. "'Do you believe it?' Then her brother exclaimed the grounds he had for believing it and that it was born in wedlock twelve months before the fact was announced to us. "'It has never been announced to us,' said Lord George. "'What are we to do? Is my mother to be told? She ought to know at once, and yet how can we tell her? What shall you do about the dean?' "'He knows.' "'You told him?' "'Yes, I thought it best.' "'Well, perhaps. And yet it is terrible that any man so distant from us should have our secrets in his keeping.' As Mary's father, I thought it right that he should know. "'I have always liked the dean personally,' said Lady Sarah. "'There is a manliness about him which has recommended him, and having a full hand he knows how to open it. But he isn't—he uh, isn't quite—' "'No, he isn't quite,' said Lord George, also hesitating to pronounce the word which was understood by both of them. "'You must tell my mother, or I must. It will be wrong to withhold it.' If you like, I will tell Susanna and Amelia." "'I think you had better tell my mother,' said Lord George. She will take it more easily from you. And then, if she breaks down, you can control her better." That Lady Sarah should have the doing of any difficult piece of work was almost a matter of course. She did tell the tale to her mother, and her mother did break down. The Marchioness, when she found that an Italian baby had been born twelve months before the time which she had been made to believe was the date of the marriage, 
took at once to her bed. What a mass of horrors was coming on them! Was she to go and see a woman who had had a baby under such circumstances? Or was her own eldest son, the very, very Marquis of Brotherton, to be there with his wife, and was she not to go and see them? Through it all her indignation against her son had not been hot as had been theirs against their brother. He was her eldest son, the very Marquis, and ought to be allowed to do almost anything he pleased. Had it not been impossible for her to rebel against Lady Sarah, she would have obeyed her son in that matter of the house. And even now it was not against her son that her heart was bitter, but against the woman who, being an Italian, and having been married, if married, without the knowledge of the family, presumed to say that her child was legitimate. Had her eldest son brought over with him to the halls of his ancestors an Italian mistress, that would of course have been very bad, but it would not have been so bad as this. Nothing could be so bad as this. "'Are we to call him Popenjoy?' she asked, with a gurgling voice, from amidst the bedclothes. Now, the eldest son of the Marquis of Brotherton would, as a matter of course, be Lord Popenjoy, if legitimate. "'Certainly we must,' said Lady Sarah authoritatively, unless the marriage should be disproved. "'Poor dear little thing,' said the Marchioness, beginning to feel some pity for the odious stranger, as soon as she was told that he really was to be called Popenjoy. Then the ladies Susanna and Amelia were informed, and the feeling became general throughout the household that the world must be near its end. What were they all to do when he should come? That was the great question. He had begun by declaring that he did not want to see any of them. He had endeavoured to drive them away from the neighbourhood, and had declared that neither his mother nor his sisters would get on with his wife. All the ladies at Cross Hall had a very strong opinion that this would turn out to be true, but still they could not bear to think that they should be living as it were next door to the head of the family, and never see him. A feeling began to creep over all of them, except Lady Sarah, that it would have been better for them to have obeyed the head of the family, and gone elsewhere. But it was too late now, the decision had been made, and they must remain. Lady Sarah, however, never gave way for a minute. "'George,' she said very solemnly, "'I have thought a great deal about this, and I do not mean to let him trample upon us.' "'It is all very sad,' said Lord George. "'Yes, indeed. If I know myself, I think I should be the last person to attribute evil motives to my elder brother, or to stand in his way in aught that he might wish to do in regard to the family. I know all that is due to him. But there is a point beyond which even that feeling cannot carry me. He has disgraced himself.' Lord George shook his head. "'And he is doing all he can to bring disgrace upon us. It has always been my wish that he should marry.' Of course, of course. It is always desirable that the eldest son should marry. The heir to the property then knows that he is the heir, and is brought up to understand his duties. Though he had married a foreigner, much as I should regret it, I should be prepared to receive her as a sister. It is for him to please himself, but in marrying a foreigner he is more specially bound to let it be known to all the world, and to have everything substantiated, than if he had married an English girl in her own parish church. As it is, we must call on her, because he says that she is his wife. 
but I shall tell him that he is acting very wrongly by us all, especially by you, and most especially by his own child, if he does not take care that such evidence of his marriage is forthcoming as shall satisfy all the world. He won't listen to you. I think I can make him, as far as that goes. At any rate, I do not mean to be afraid of him. Nor must you. I hardly know whether I will even see him. Yes, you must see him. If we are to be expelled from the family house, let it be his doing, and not ours. We have to take care, George, that we do not make a single false step. We must be courteous to him, but above all we must not be afraid of him." In the meantime the dean went up to London, meaning to spend a week with his daughter in her new house. They had both intended that this should be a period of great joy to them. Plans had been made as to the theatres and one or two parties, which were almost as exciting to the dean as to his daughter. It was quite understood by both of them that the dean up in London was to be a man of pleasure rather than a clergyman. He had no purpose of preaching either at St. Paul's or the Abbey. He was going to attend no curate's aid society or sons of the clergy. He intended to forget Mr. Groshut to ignore Dr. Pountney, and have a good time. That had been his intention, at least till he saw Lord George at the deanery. But now there were serious thoughts in his mind. When he arrived, Mary had for the time got nearly rid of the incubus of the Italian marchioness with her baby. She was all smiles as she kissed him, but he could not keep himself from the great subject. "'This is terrible news, my darling,' he said at once. Do you think so, papa? Certainly I do. I don't see why Lord Brotherton should not have a son and heir as well as anybody else. He is quite entitled to have a son and heir, one may almost say more entitled than any one else, seeing that he has got so much to leave to him, but on that very account he is more bound than any one else to let all the world feel sure that his declared son and heir is absolutely his son and heir. He couldn't be so vile as that, papa. God forbid that I should say that he could. It may be that he considers himself married, though the marriage would not be valid here. Maybe he is married, and that yet the child is not legitimate. Mary could not but blush as her father spoke to her thus plainly. All we do know is that he wrote to his own brother, declaring that he was about to be married twelve months after the birth of the child, whom he now expects us to recognize as the heir to the title. I, for one, am not prepared to accept his word without evidence, and I shall have no scruple in letting him know that such evidence will be wanted. End of chapter 14